All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21, looking at verses 17 through 26. Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 26. You ever hear people say, uh, I don't care what people think about me. You ever hear that? I don't care what people, maybe you've said it. I've said it. <laughs> Pretended I'm all tough. I don't care what people think about me. And sometimes it's a good thing, right? That can be a good thing. It means you're independent and you know, it can mean that I'm, I'm not going to be bullied by somebody else. It can mean that you're going to stand up for yourself and do what's right, even if it means that people are going to make fun of you for it. I don't care what people think about me. That can be a good thing. Uh, it can also just be a, a lie that we say, you know, trying to pretend that we don't care when we really do. Because to be honest, people that say it and mean it, they mean it with qualifications. Because there's always some people that matter. You know, you might not care what some people think. You might not care what most people think. But there's, I think there's pretty much always some people that you really do care you know, if somebody, if somebody uh, listens to one of my sermons online and they're like, that guy Joe's terrible uh, and boring at best, I don't really care. If it's you people, I care. Like suddenly it's like, oh man, I, and it's not because it's an insult. It's because, wow, I want to connect and there's a disconnect. And it's like, I actually care what you guys think and how you guys feel. And because we do care ultimately what some people think of us because reputation actually does have value. On some level, what some people think matters. So when your reputation suffers, when what people think or say about you is hurtful or destructive, it can be confusing, alarming, disorienting. And we're going to see this. We're going to see what rumors and reputation and gossip and slander can look like in Paul's life. And I want us to learn a principle today, right? Because as much as we might not care what so many other people think about us, we all ultimately do care on some level because reputation matters. And when our reputation suffers, we need to learn this principle that it is Jesus that saves us from what people think about us. We all need saving from sin, our sin. We all need redemption. And Jesus is the one who saves, but we will all at times need Jesus to save us from what other people think about us. So stay with me. We're going to look at the passage, right? We're going to look at verses 17 through 26. We're going to walk through it very simply, get a grasp on what's happening there. And then I want us to consider this point, what it means that Jesus saves us from what people think about us and how he actually does it. So we start off in verse 17 here, and this is Paul coming back from his third missionary journey. The church in Jerusalem had sent Paul out. He is on a, a third trip through uh, multiple regions where he's preaching the gospel, he's planting churches, he's encouraging the church, he's doing the very things that God has gifted him and called him to do. And not only is he faithful, he is being fruitful, like good things are happening. So he comes back and he's ready to give a report. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly 
On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He comes and he gives a report. It is a testimony, right? Testimony, that should be a word we used a lot. I feel like we used it a lot in the 90s and before. I heard a lot of people like, testimony, you're going to testify, right? Uh, and now, not so much. I don't hear as much about it. Maybe, maybe I've changed. Maybe the circle I'm in has changed a little bit. But it is an important thing to give report, to give a testimony, to testify about what God is doing. Paul does this. And what I love is that when Paul gives a report about what has happened in his ministry, it is less about what he has done, and it's more about what God has done every time. Of course, Paul has been active, but it's not about that. It's not about all of his sacrifice and accomplishments. It's about what God is doing in and through him. And so let me just take a moment here just to encourage you to please look for opportunities to testify about what God is doing in your life to other Christians. We need to hear it. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. And it's a great opportunity for you to not brag on what you are doing, please know the difference, and what God has actually done graciously for you, to help you, to, to, to bless you, or what you have seen God do in other people's lives. Testify. Are you ready? Are you ready to share what God is doing in your life? Because uh, the people around you need a good word, Right? It actually makes me think of that passage in Luke where uh, homeboy, that's his name in Greek, he's uh, possessed by demons, and he is, it's, it's bad. Like, I, we don't have time to get into the whole story, but it's bad. He's, he's, he's really possessed. And um, Jesus liberates him. Jesus casts out the demons. And so we read in verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus. Where else would he want to be, Right? You just liberated me. You saved me. You delivered me from this mess where I had no hope, no control. And what does he want to do? He's like, Jesus, I just want to stay with you. Who wouldn't, right? Like, please let me just stay. My savior, my deliverer, the giver of life. And Jesus says, no, go home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. That's your testimony. It's not just how I became a Christian. That's a fine thing to do. But we need to get better at actually just telling the truth about all of the good things God is doing to us on a daily basis. To testify, to share, to bless others. Yes, it's bragging, but it's not bragging about you. It's bragging about God. And don't focus so much on the material stuff. That stuff does count too. But focus on the good spiritual enrichment that you experience, the enlightenment, the teaching, the lessons you learn. What is God doing in your life? Be prepared to share it with others because they need to hear it. We're called to this. All right, so Paul comes back, gives his report. God is doing great things. Lots of people are getting converted. Lots of Gentiles are getting converted. This is amazing. And his reception in verse 20 is good, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's very positive. Uh, and when they heard it, they glorified God. That's great. They glorified God. They're, they're, they're excited. They, they recognize what Paul has done. They recognize his faithfulness. They can see the fruit that's being born, but they don't make a big deal out of Paul. They make a big deal out of God. 
Like, look at God go. Look at what God's doing. They glorified God. Um, so let me, let me just take another pause. Just, I know it's, these are the things that God is teaching me, right? So I'm, I'm going to give to you. It's my way of encouraging you, right? As I'm reading this, they, they receive this testimony and they, they give glory to God. But what they're doing in that moment is they are celebrating the work of God with Paul as he testifies. They're celebrating. They're celebrating with, with one another. They're, we need to be as willing to celebrate with others as we are to share God's good news, right? To share the, the testimony, to share his, his work. And now this should be easier, right? You would think like, okay, well, testifying might be harder because maybe it takes some boldness. You have to be paying attention to your life and to what God is doing. And then you have to articulate it and then you got to share it with somebody. Please try. You can't fail. So please do, but easier than that, right, is to simply receive the good news, to hear what God is doing, and then to rejoice with them. Rejoice with your brothers and your sisters. But here's where it gets hard. Sometimes, sometimes the good work that God is doing in other people's lives is harder for them to see than it is for you to see. Sometimes, like just, we're so close, right? Like, I've, John Piper said something I thought, I thought was really helpful. He said, God is doing a million different things in your life at one time, and you only see one or two of them. But there are other people around you that can see if you're paying attention, right? If you're praying for each other, if we're lifting each other up, if we're in each other's lives, then we should be able to look and go, wow, look at what God is doing in their life. Now, when you see that, don't keep it to yourself. Don't assume that they know it. And even if they do know it, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be incredibly helpful or encouraging for you to say, wow, I can see what God is doing in your life, how he's changing you, teaching you. You look more like Christ now than you did a year ago. I can, I can see it. Or wow, man, like the, the insight that God gave you or the way that he provided for you, the way he protected you, whatever it is, if you see God at work in someone's life, whether they share a testimony or not, be a person that can rejoice with them and share it. So the reception is good. They give glory to God. This idea of celebrating with one another is baked into our Culture, at least it's supposed to be, right? We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans 12, 15. We're supposed to mourn with those who mourn. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. We're supposed to exhort one another. So this all goes together. Piece of advice, um, because we all, most of us struggle with this uh, at, from time to time. When somebody is sharing something that God is teaching them, uh, your response should be to rejoice with them to receive it gladly and not make it about you. Like there's this, it's a conversational landmine that we step on sometimes where it's like, we hear what God, we're like, oh, God's doing that, that's really cool. And then in order to relate, we start sharing our story and our experience without giving full time and attention to what they're going through. So don't do that, don't make it about yourself. You can share your thing later, okay? But take time to just be present and don't distract or detract from what they are saying or what you have observed about what God is doing in their life, right? Fair enough? All right, so Paul gives a report. The reception is good, but there is a problem. Verses 21 and 22. Uh, well, we'll start in the middle of, of, of 20. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They're all very zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses 
telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Uh, People are talking out of the side of their mouth about Paul and saying things that simply are not true. They're saying things about Paul that are not true. Now, listen, I think Paul is the kind of guy that does not really care what people think about him, right? Why would Paul, Paul, God, no man's going to judge me but God. Like, we're going to obey God, not man. That's, you know, Paul gets it. And yet, a damaged reputation, whether it is a misunderstanding, which is most common, or malicious, a damaged reputation comes from people who do not know the truth and wind up perpetuating falsehoods. And that will not only have uh, an implication uh, to the individual's experience, but it will actually impact society on some level, at least a culture, a family, in this case, the church. There's rumors, there's gossip, and falsehood. Now, before we get into what they're saying, I just want to put a finer point on it. Romans 16, sorry, Proverbs 16, 28 says, hear this in the context of Paul being faithful to God, doing what God wants him to do, seeking to bring unity into the church, right? Like Jew and Gentile together. And now there are these rumors about him that are not true. Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. The whisperer, whether they are misinformed or malicious, is separating close friends. This is why we say at some level, reputation matters. At some level, what people think or believe about you does matter at some level because it can do damage to a family. So here's Paul. He's hearing about this stuff. You know, he, this is Paul that says, hey, let no coarse or corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for edification. This is what Paul believes in, and yet he's hearing people tearing him down. Now, the accusation here, the accusation is that Paul is anti-law, right? Not like civil law out in society, but like God's law. In other words, Paul has been out there preaching the gospel. He goes to the synagogues, he preaches there, but he's not getting a big response. So he goes to the Gentiles and lots of Gentiles are believing. And so now you have Jews and Gentiles that are doing life together in the church. And there are these people out there that are saying, hey, listen, I hear when Paul's out there doing his thing that he's telling the Jews who have all of their lives obeyed the old covenant laws. They didn't call them old covenant laws back then. They just called them covenant laws, right? They just obey God's laws. You know, so they're, they're making the sacrifices. They're doing the festivals. They're doing their things. But Paul is telling them now as Christians, they shouldn't be doing any of those things. They, they shouldn't be circumcised and they shouldn't keep those laws. That's not what Paul is saying. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. But Paul understands that there are good Christians who are Jewish and they have grown up with these laws and they are keeping these laws and they are not confused at all. They keep these laws as a way of life and they do so and they honor God, but they know that their salvation or their standing before God is not based on their adherence to those commandments, but on what Christ has done for them. 
And Paul also knows that there are Gentiles who are in the mix and they're seeing this rich, amazing heritage and culture of the Jewish people. And like these Gentiles are like, you know, they don't have a whole lot. And so they're, they're looking like, this is really amazing. Do I need to do that stuff? Do I need to circumcise my kids? Do I need to be circumcised? And Paul says to them, no, you don't have to do that. Uh, because your salvation or your standing before God is not based on that. It is based upon the mercy and the merits of Jesus. Now, what Paul does say, he do, Paul does have hard words for those Jewish Christians who would take the law of God and hold it out against Gentiles and say, if you are not observing these laws, you cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. If you are not circumcised, you are not the child of God. When they start saying things like that, then Paul writes Galatians and says, you're the ones that are going to hell, fools. That's what he says. So when it comes to, is Paul anti-law? Absolutely not. The law is good. It is no longer binding on the people of God, those ceremonial laws, those civil laws. But as Jews in the first century were keeping it, as things were rolling along, no problem. Let your conscience be clear. That's the reality. So what we're talking about here is people are creating unnecessary division. There's no reason for it. Sometimes division is necessary. Sometimes you gotta say, no, we part ways. You're wrong or you think I'm wrong and you go doctrinal, whatever. There is no reason that there should be a separation here. Paul's working towards unity. So the elders are like, all right, we got a plan. And just note that Paul is meeting with the elders in private. This is not a church-wide meeting. They're trying to figure this out. Like, it's really interesting that they're like, all right, let's just, let's just gather Paul just next day, come here. We, just got, we gotta tell you some stuff, got some bad news. You know, got some people with big mouth. Um, what are we going to do? So they have a solution in verses 23 through 26. So they, they address, well, here's what I want you to do to regard, uh, to help people, to, to basically to clarify or to fix their misunderstanding about your thoughts on the law. And then they address the Gentiles. So verses 23 and 24, it says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, like a Nazarite vow, right? This is old covenant vow stuff. They're going to shave the head. They're going to dedicate themselves to the Lord. It's the whole thing. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So what they say is like, look, People are concluding wrongly that you are anti-law, that you, you tell Jews that they should not be keeping any of these laws, and that's not true. So to show that, to demonstrate that, we would like you to buddy up with these four guys that are taking the vow, okay? And uh, I want you to, to purify yourself. You're going to go through the whole, all the rituals. Uh, you're going to pay their fees. You're going to pay it, all right? And this will show everybody that uh, you you're obviously have no beef because you're willing to, to get on in and, and support this. So we want you to be supportive. We want you to be with them and, uh, and pay their fees. And so Paul says, done. Let's do that. Great. Because he understands like, what people think on some level, level does matter. And if he can make a difference and clarify, then let's clarify. He wants to show support. He wants to quiet the rumors. But then they talk about the Gentiles. This was about the Jewish Christians, not about the Gentile Christians. Verses 25 and 26, it says, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment. So just hang on. Do you know what he's talking about? Chapter 15. This issue already came up. And the Jerusalem council convened. And they're like, how are we going to deal with Jews and Gentiles living together? Because 
you know, the Gentiles are getting pressure from some saying like, hey, listen, you should be circumcised. You should keep these laws. You should watch the dietary restrictions. You should, you know, you should observe the festivals. And uh, so like, what do we do? How do we, like, there's, it, church is messy. So how do, we, how do we fix this? So they've already addressed this issue. So they're pointing back. They're not issuing anything new. They say, we've issued, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So two things are happening here. Uh, well, I think one big thing is happening here. The Gentiles who have the freedom to eat whatever they want are encouraged by the Jerusalem council to be deferential towards their brothers and sisters who struggle on this point because their brothers and sisters are weak in their conscience on this matter. And so it's, it's not about what is absolutely right or wrong, wrong but he says, listen, uh, the Jerusalem council says, listen, I, I want you, Gentile Christians, though you have the freedom to eat whatever you want, I want you to show deference. Don't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Uh, don't eat meat that doesn't have the blood string a lot of it. This is going to... This is going to trip up your Jewish brothers and sisters. And the reason this is so important is because the church spent time together. They loved each other. They, they communed together. And what did they do when they spent time together? Most of the time they were eating. Portillo's next week. That's why we do it, by the way. That's actually why we do it. We just want it. How can we spend more time together? Chili dogs. I'm doing chili dogs. Anyways, it... And so since food is so important and those meals were so important, it was just an unnecessary distraction. Just show deference, right? In their presence, just don't exercise your freedom and, and blow them out of the water. And then you might go like, okay, but I get all that. But then it's like, and don't be sexually immoral. <laughs> like that seems kind of absolute and objective. Like that doesn't seem cultural. And you would be right. Why is it mentioned? Why does Paul mention it in almost every one of his epistles to all of the churches? Because people be struggling with it. Because it was such a part of the pagan background that he had to address it again and again and again. That's not an excuse. We shouldn't overlook sin. That's why it's addressed again and again. But why is it brought up? Because it was one of the ones that was just easy culturally to continue in. And you know what it's like when you become a Christian. If you remember becoming a Christian, especially later in, later in life, you can remember like, man, there were certain things when I became a Christian, boom, I'm done. No more drugs or whatever it was. Like there might be something like, I just never struggled again with that. But then there are other things. There are other things that you could not break free from that easily. And it, and it, was, it, was, a, it was a pain point for you. So Paul is constantly telling these new young Christians that are Gentiles, like, hey, watch out for sexual immorality. So it all goes together just to say, listen, you've, you've, you've got to come together as the body of Christ, showing deference to each other. And this is ultimately going to be what just crushes these lies, these rumors, these gossip sessions that are out there. And Paul obeys, takes care of business. So that's the story. That's the story. Um, the point, the point, the point here is we do have to recognize that reputation does matter. It's not absolute. It's not the most important thing, but it is important. In uh, Proverbs 22, uh, verse 1, it says, a good name is to be chosen rather than riches. Right? It, it, there's value there. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Right? So uh, uh, 
a, a person's or a people's perception of who you are does matter. It carries some weight because your reputation is supposed to be a reflection of who you are. It's supposed to be a reflection, not an assessment. That's a judgment. Your reputation is supposed to be a reflection of who you are, of your character. So what people think and what people may know about you has relational value. And sometimes we suffer, sometimes you will suffer reputational ruin, right? And that's costly. It will hurt. Doesn't matter. I don't care what people think. It will hurt. Now, sometimes we suffer reputational ruin by our own doing. We do a bad thing, do the wrong thing. You get busted. You get caught. And what are we supposed to do here? Repent, right? This is pretty basic Christian life stuff, right? We believe the gospel and we repent of our sins. Now, we see, we see what happens most of the time, right? Especially public figures, whether they're actors or politicians uh, or famous preachers or whatever, right? Uh, they get busted. Their reputation is ruined. And they're supposed to repent. But what do they do? Uh, they lie, they deny, uh, they equivocate, they blame other people, you know. Uh, we do, it's just, it's, it's, it's the wrong response. It's the harder response, coming up with lies and deceit, but it is less painful than repenting. Listen, if you've, if you've ruined your own reputation, uh, then what, what we do is we say, hey, listen, and listen, if any politician or actor or studio exec or preacher, if they were to just come out and say, hey, listen, I was wrong and I'm so sorry, and I, I, I hope that by the grace of God, I can someday rebuild the reputation, how do you think that would be received by people? That's pretty good, right? People would be like, you didn't blame anybody. Oh, hey, all right, all right, well, they're going to be a little bit more open. That's what we're called to do. However, what Paul is experiencing is something different, and you all have or will experience this when you experience reputational ruin, either by misunderstanding or malice. People can misunderstand. That happens. They'll look at you, and they'll see what you do, and you'll say things, and you won't always say things the right way. I won't always say things the right way. And sometimes people will just misunderstand. There has been no sin. People misunderstand, and then that misperception is then shared by others, and, and then your reputation can somehow be harmed. That happens, and there are ways to remedy that, right? We address it as we can. We'll talk about that. But then there are those who would ruin your reputation by malice. You know what malice is. It's intentional harm. It is, it is a desire to inflict damage. It's a kind of hatred. And there are people that will ruin your reputation, or at least seek to do so, because of malice in their heart. Now, whether it's by misunderstanding or malice, the effect is the same, right? It hurts. Wow. There's going to be an impact. And so what do we need? We need Jesus to save us from what people are thinking. Now, uh, sometimes that involves repair, which is good. But oftentimes, it just involves rescue. And there isn't a lot of repair that can happen sometimes about the reputation, at least not in the immediacy. So Jesus saves us from what people think. Even though it's important, sometimes we need deliverance from that. How does Jesus do it? Three ways. We're going to be quick here, okay? Three ways Jesus saves us from what people think. Number one, 
We let Christ define us. And let me just say for a lot of you nitpickers out there, I know we don't let Jesus do anything, okay? Jesus does what he wants to do. I'm not gonna, we're gonna allow Jesus into our lives. I know that, I'm just saying, to say, let Jesus define you. I'm saying embrace how Christ defines you. I just like saying it this way better. So number one, let Christ define you. This is the most important aspect to you surviving and being delivered from misrepresentation, malice, personal attack, slander, gossip, It's the most important thing. What defines you? Do you know who you really are? It's the most significant question I believe Americans are asking today. Who am I? What defines me? What is my identity? What makes me what I am? And the reason you need to know this is because you're going to be hearing two different things. You're going to hear what people say. You're going to hear what the world says. You're going to hear what your enemy says. Or you're going to listen to what Jesus says about you. What matters? Do you know who you are in Christ? See, the Christian, the Christian has a very beautiful and multifaceted and rich identity that cannot be taken away from us. The Christian, the one who believes in Jesus, the one who has trusted in Christ for their forgiveness of sins, they they are a new creature in Christ, Paul says, right? We're a new creature, right? You are. Perhaps most importantly, loved. That's who you are. Do you want to know who you are, what your identity is? You are loved by God. You are forgiven by God. You are declared righteous by God. You are pure, clean in the eyes of God, accepted. You are reconciled. You are adopted. You are the child of God, the son or daughter that is always loved, always accepted, always can draw near. That's who you are, and nothing can take any of that away from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, neither height nor power. No demons, not death, nothing. You are forgiven. That is your sins, no matter how bad, no matter how corrupt, no matter how marring and jarring they are for even people to just hear about, uh, your sins are forgiven. The ones that people talk about, the ones that nobody knows, the big ones that you're going to commit next year that are going to upend parts of your life. You are forgiven. You are declared to be righteous in the sight of God. This is at the heart of our, of our good news that we believe, this gospel. You are called a saint, a holy one. That's how God sees you, adopted now and forever. That's who you are. This is what it means to be saved, by the way. We talk about being saved. Oh, I'm saved. You're saved. I got saved when I was like uh, 18. Okay, cool. What does that mean? Well, it means at that moment, the love of God penetrated my heart and actually changed me. So I believed. And now, uh, because of that, I'm, I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed and I'm adopted as a child. And you see, all of these things, they're true. And what we're trying to combat here is falsehood and misinformation, right, when you're being attacked. So you have to know the truth. And the truth is rooted in what God has to say about you in Jesus Christ. This is what's real. It doesn't mean that what's out there won't have an impact and won't hurt, but this trumps everything. Your identity is in Jesus. It is who you are. And you know what that gives you? It gives you hope and joy and confidence. 
And if you've ever been attacked or slandered or gossiped about, you know, people are making fun of you or whatever it is, you know how it makes a lot of us feel? It makes a lot of us feel sheepish and embarrassed, like, oh, geez, I don't want to look at anybody in the eyes. I feel kind of weird about it. And, um, but if you know how God sees you, how God relates to you, if you know who you are in Jesus, you begin to recover hope and joy and courage, not arrogance, courage, where you can hold your head up because you know, you know how God thinks. So let Christ define you. If you're going to endure and weather, let Christ define you. Number two, let Christ lead you, right? So Christ saves you from what other people think, not just by defining you, but also by leading you through it because Jesus knows better than anybody what it is to be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, to be labeled. Jesus was slandered and mocked all the time despite the fact of him being the very son of God. One passage I want you guys to keep in mind, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. It says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This says everything because it hits on identity, but also the example that we're supposed to follow. Jesus leads us by example. He leads us through all of it, all the time. Because he was slandered, he was mocked, he was lied about. And how did he respond? Did he match their energy? I like matching people's energy. I think that's fun. When somebody's like, ba 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 ba, I'm like, oh, ba ba ba, I like to come back. I'm not even mad about it. I just want to match the energy. And Jesus doesn't do that. And by the way, Jesus actually calls you to match his energy, that's what he does. Not their energy. Anyways, he doesn't do that. He doesn't return. He doesn't, as much as I kind of want him to when I'm reading it because I, I want the bad people to get what they deserve. He doesn't sin in response. He doesn't destroy them. He patiently suffers well. He patiently entrusts his soul to the Father's care. And in doing this, he obviously prevailed. And in doing this, he saves sinners like us from our sins, and then shows us the way we are to live. We let Christ lead us through it. Let me, let me give you a, a practical sort of example, right? So um, relationally, you've, and you even see this with Paul. You're misrepresented, gossip, whatever. And you want to correct. You want to correct your brothers and sisters in Christ who you have the opportunity to correct, if you have the opportunity to correct them. There's a way to do that. And the key word all the time in the New Testament, the key word to correcting your brothers and sisters is the word gentleness. Now, I happen to like, like butt-busting, board-smacking correction. That's what I like. I, I feel like that's what I need and that's what I want to get, but that's not at all what God calls us to do. It's not what Jesus did. And it's not, it's not what Paul did here. Look at how Paul condescended. He, he tried to accommodate. He tried to show where his heart really was. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. 
It's an exhortation to pastors, but it applies to everyone. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. I don't know if you guys are reading Twitter, but uh, a lot of pastors need to repent and then get off of Twitter. The Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. If you want to see people, see, here's the thing. It's not just about repairing your reputation. That's important, but it's also about seeing them grow in grace and come to a knowledge of the truth. They're wrong. You want to see them healthy. You want to see them flourish. And if you want that to happen, then yes, you correct them, but you do so with gentleness as you suffer well. Third, and finally, very quickly here, let Christ define you. Let Christ lead you. Thirdly, let Christ judge you. Because what's happening, right, when your reputation is attacked, uh, somebody's judging you. You guys know what that's like. Did people judge you before? And, um, and that can sting, that, that can hurt, right? Um, but the truth is, it's the one who has saved you, who defines you, who knows you, who leads you, that ultimately judges you, and his judgment is perfect. And how has he judged you, Christian? Worthy of death and condemnation, but giving you life, forgiveness, and every spiritual blessing. How does he judge you, Christian? He pardons you, right? You pardoned, eternally and forever accepted. I want to close with one simple verse, just one verse. Um, we read this passage quite a bit, but it's, I'm just going to read one verse, right? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, that's his judgment, who can be against us? It's their judgment. Jesus saves us from what people think of us. Sometimes we need that because it's wrong. Sometimes we need that because we value it too much. What people think can be important. So sometimes we need saving from that, but our, our hope and our joy and our confidence is ultimately seen in the Christ who defines us and leads us and has judged us. Not worthy of pardon, but pardoned for the sake of his own love and his own glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would um, teach us, just like you, you, you teach the apostles and you, you taught Paul. And as he was going through whatever he was going through here, um, we know that we are going to need to be taught, we're going to need to learn these lessons, or we need it right now. Whatever the case is, God, we trust that you, by your Holy Spirit, who indwells us, would teach us and that we would grow in unity together as we see all the amazing things that you are doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.